The Formula One season is officially over. It was a season dominated by Red Bull and Max Verstappen. Ferrari has said goodbye to Mattia Bonotto, and three new drivers will join the grid in 2023. Let's take a look back at the 2022 season. Beat Red Bull on strategy, you've still got to beat Max Verstappen on pace. And if you beat Max Verstappen on pace, you've still got to beat Red Bull on strategy. So he's cooling off in the Colorado Rivers, getting photos <laughs> taken of his arse. I mean, if I'm Red Bull and Ferrari, I'm looking more at the silver cars. I'm I'm very worried about what they're what they're cooking up because I think there's a lot of potential there for next season. Welcome to Unlapped, an ESPN F1 show. I'm Katie George. He's Lawrence Edmondson, and that's Nate Saunders. And we're joined with a special guest for our recap here, James Hinchcliffe. And James, first and foremost, happy birthday. <laughs> I have to know who bribed you to come onto the show on your birthday, Nate or Lawrence? Oh, are you kidding me? I mean, this is this is the greatest gift anyone could ask for on their sure. birthday. <laughs> I'm impressed. We're so I, happy to have you. When I heard that, I, I don't think I've ever willfully worked on my birthday. So I was pretty impressed with that. Too. <laughs> hey, it's not, if, if you're doing what you love, it's not work, right? So happy to be here, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're, we're so happy to have you. Thanks for joining the recap. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, like this video, leave us a comment of what you want to hear more of. And don't forget to subscribe to ESPN for more F1 content. And if you're listening, hit us with a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. So let's take a look back at the 2022 season as a whole and assess how teams and drivers performed throughout the year, shall we? And we're going to start, as you could imagine, uh, with the team that dominated what was 2022 and Red Bull. Got off to what seemed like a slow start with some engine issues. Charles Leclerc and Ferrari, you know, took the lead early on. And Horner made that pretty uh, infamous statement where he'd rather fix a fast car than make a slow one fast. And then they got off and running and it was a dominant performance by Max. Nate, let's start with you. The season that was with Red Bull, where do you go from here? What did you think of the season that they put together? Well, I think this is probably one of the most impressive seasons we've seen in Formula One for a driver, for a team. I mean, even even like the Lewis seasons when he was dominating, never dominated like this. Um, <clears throat> Max, what was crazy about the season from him, his perspective was he just seemed to keep like raising the bar, which as much as I want to see a close fight next season, look, the Max of 2022 looked like, I don't want to say unbeatable because I don't think anyone ever is unbeatable, but he looked pretty damn close to that, didn't he? Mm -hmm. For a lot of that time. So right now, that obviously is the team to be that's that's what you've got to look at and i think what was so impressive was that like you said they started on the back foot we actually thought they were going to be the team that maybe were kind of you know their season was ruined with reliability issues with you know maybe things weren't coming together once they got past that early spell it was it all went the other way and it all went towards the red guys you know uh one spot over on the in uh in the pit lane so yeah i i found it thought it was really impressive team driver you know everything seemed to come together and We've always said in Formula One, you have to have the whole package to win. And as good as Max is, you know, he's unbelievable. That whole operation there seems to be operating. And for so long, they said, you know, we've got everything in place. We need to win. It's just the regulations maybe weren't in the right place. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, they look fantastic. So, yeah, I was so impressed. And um, it's going to it's gonna take a, monument a monumental effort to beat them next season. Because, you know, if you beat Red Bull on strategy, you've still got to beat Max Verstappen on pace. And if you beat Max Verstappen on pace, you've still got to beat Red Bull on strategy. So, you know, you've got to do everything to kind of beat these guys. So um, yeah, they've set an incredible, uh, incredible level, I think. James, we know that 
Daniel Ricardo is going to be a reserve driver. And there was obviously, um, I would say, a little bit of drama between Checo Perez and Max Verstappen towards the latter part of the season. Do you feel like all of that is ironed out and the two of them will be chummy as we move into the 2023 season? Or do you think that there will be some internal struggles like we saw this season? You know, I think there's always going to be internal struggles at a race team when when one driver's dominating so much over another and there's internal struggles at a race team when the two drivers are equally matched for different reasons. I think there's just always going to be, you know, that tension in the garage in a Formula One team. And, you know, Checo has been an, an incredible teammate to Max. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think we can all agree maybe hasn't been reciprocated in the same way in the, in the, in the few instances where he had the opportunity. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, it's Max's house. There's no doubt about that, right? And so if you're Checo, whatever feelings you have, you kind of have to bottle them up and just focus and do your job and sort of play the part because now you do have a former Red Bull race winner and championship contender and fan favorite and all-round good guy, Daniel Ricardo, sitting in as your, you know, your third driver on top of the fact that you've now got Nick DeVries coming into AlphaTauri. Uh, who's coming in with a lot of hype behind him, obviously not stepping into a Red Bull car, but you can still be, you know, assessed on your performance in that, in that package. So Red Bull now has a, a couple fallback plans. If either Checo isn't performed the way they need him to, or there are some tensions in the paddock that, that Max doesn't like, because that literally could make the difference at that point. I think his power in the team is so strong. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic. I think Checo has done a very good job. I'm really happy he got that opportunity, you know, two years ago, and I'm, I'm glad they kept him on. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if there's any improvement from that side of the garage in, uh, in 2023, if he's any closer to Max and, you know, what the potential internal conflicts are like there. James, do you think they need that? Do you think Red Bull actually need Checo performing on a level similar to Max? Or is that, are they actually better off of a situation where it's very clear who's number one, who's number two, and you have a talent like Max performing on the level he is? Yes. Yes to both. I think I think the uh, I think that the fact of the matter is their package and, and Max specifically was just so dominant this year. But, you know, as Nate said, that's not normal. That's not typical mm-hmm. in Formula One. The other teams are going to catch up. That gap's going to come down and you need that second driver performing a little bit more consistently, a little bit more quickly uh, than Checo did in, in 2022 to make sure you're still fighting the manufacturer's championship. If you look at the driver lineups across the whole series, I think that Mercedes has probably the overall strongest with Ferrari a close second. So if Red Bull doesn't have the car and you know package advantage that they had this year, yeah, you really need Checo to stand up and be fighting for those wins when Max isn't, fighting for those podiums, keeping the Ferraris and the Mercedes off to keep Red Bull in the, in the constructor's fight. But I still think you need Max to know that he's the boss and everything else sort of happens. I think he yeah. certainly knows that he is the boss. Is that fair? I think that's absolutely fair. And that's been such a key thing for this, this Red Bull team to build it around Max. We saw with the development of the car this year, it started off actually more of a Checo car. You know, there were those early races. Saudi Arabia stands out to me as um, a very early turning point, but a turning point already in, in Checo's season because he qualified on pole, looked like he was on for a win if there wasn't a safety car at the time it came out. And then that just went Max's way. And then from that point onwards, the car was developing more towards Max's side. When they got to Belgium and they had a limited amount of spare floors, the floor that the team felt was slightly quicker went to Max's car. And so it just built and built and built. But I I mean, I I think this is uh, how long eras of dominance are built. It's built around one driver being there, signed there for a long time. And then, you know, really having somebody who can support him along the way. And 
as James pointed out, they now have Daniel and Checo uh, both doing that. And of course, the potential to uh, replace Checo if they need to. So to the point there, Lawrence, they've obviously set the bar here. In 2023, do you just see them exceed that and raise the level? Or do you foresee the reduced wind tunnel time you know, playing a factor at least early on in the season? Yeah, I think there's a number of things. There's the reduced wind tunnel time, which is going to knock off a bit of the extra performance. And when it's as tight as it is at the front, uh, that is going to be, um, that, you know, that could be key. But I think the other thing is is how the other two teams, that their realistic competitors, Ferrari and Mercedes, do over the winter. And it feels like Mercedes have quite a lot of low-hanging fruit they can attack. We know how good that team is. And so if Mercedes are all of a sudden, you know, finding a big step, uh, whether Red Bull will find that as well, you know, to the same extent, again, with that limited wind tunnel time as a result of um, the overspend on the cost cap, uh, that could all come together to, I hope personally, as an observer of Formula One, close it up. Um, but uh, at the same time, you just feel like Red Bull at the moment, have they have momentum and that goes a long way. And every time we've seen a team become dominant, it starts with that. It's just that I think that their opposition uh, so often we see the case the opposition isn't quite that good, but with Mercedes, that opposition we know is really good. So I can see them coming back in as well. So the next team that we're going to discuss obviously started out in what looked like could have been a dominant year. I don't know if you guys want to draw straws of who has to talk about Ferrari or if somebody's chomping at the bit to assess the year that was. Who would like to start? Because there are so many different ways that we could take this, obviously, in the news that Mattia Bonotta has resigned. Uh, and he will no longer be leading this team as team principal. Who would like to go first? Trying to work out if it's a good birthday present or a bad birthday <laughs> present to start talking about Ferrari first. But so I'll let you work that out, James, if you want to jump in. But Okay, so um, th- it's a tough one. You know, the I, I, sort of skipping ahead. I mean, you talk about the year, obviously started off with the strengths that they had. Sort of a downturn mid-season, driver mistakes, strategy errors. The, you know, the inability to get the the kind of tire longevity problem sorted. They just, they were harsh on their tires. Good over a lap. You know, Charles had more poles than Max, which when you think about how dominant a season Max had, that's actually incredible to think of the one lap pace of that car and that driver. Um, found a little bit, maybe more relative pace in the last sort of quarter of the year. But I look at their year on the whole as, as a huge success. And and I know I'm in the minority. I'm certainly I'm certainly gonna be frowned upon in the Italian press, maybe for saying that. But the 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 development with Bonotto really puzzles me. It really does, because you you think back, he joined in 2019. So you can't really judge anything 2019 because that's done sort of before him, right? 2020, they were sixth in the constructors championship. 2021, they were third. 2022, they were second. Now, if I'm looking at a graph. I'm pretty happy as a Ferrari fan. This is a upward trajectory, nice linear path towards, you know, a championship. Uh, so they, they they took advantage of the new regulations. They built a much more competitive car than they've had. He's put together a very strong driver lineup for a very long time. The, the big issues seem to be around the strategy. Everybody was really focusing on these strategy mistakes. Bonato's not making those calls exclusively, unilaterally on the pit wall. I understood his approach of not wanting to overhaul the pit wall in the middle of the season and fire people for making mistakes on the spot. Mm-hmm. So give him an off season to figure it out and replace the people that maybe weren't performing at the level they should have. And then let's carry on. I mean, they've got, you know, a wind tunnel time advantage over the Red Bulls, like we've talked about. They know very specifically what issues of the car they need to fix. 
I, I'm just, I'm kind of shocked. It took Jean Todd five years to win a championship with Ferrari. And then look what happened. You look at the trajectory. Don't look at the season in isolation. Look at the trajectory of what has happened at that team since he took over the helm. I'm, I think this was a, a year too soon. Ferrari's had six different team principles to that point since Horner took over at Red Bull. So I would imagine lack of continuity, guys, maybe plays a factor, Nate. Yeah, and I think the Horner the Horner point is quite interesting because you know obviously he won for four years there as team boss, but then they had what was it seven eight years when Red Bull didn't win and they didn't say right we've got to get rid of Horner. They clearly saw okay, there's a bigger issue here. The issue is the regs and yeah you know, we're maybe on the back foot a little bit. So I think that's a really good point about continuity. I mean, for me, I think the point about strategy is key. You know, it seems that there's something about the way the team runs, whether it's on a smaller level or whether it's on a bigger level. If you compare it to Red Bull and to to uh, Mercedes. And I think that one of the issues they need to change, it maybe is is cultural there in terms of the way they deal with mistakes. One of the things through the year that really, I mean, I, I think I had a rant about it on this show, didn't I? When Benotto said, no one points out Mercedes' strategy. Yeah, I've had quite a few. Um, <laughs> as somebody who grew up as a Ferrari fan, you know, it's, it's frustrating um, to see it. Um, and I think it was, I forget the race itself, but Benotto said something like, Mercedes never gets the criticism we get for this. And I was like, well, mm-hmm. A, Mercedes have just won eight straight championships, but they do get those criti- those criticisms. And one of the things that I've always been impressed about with Mercedes when they dominated was they would make mistakes. And, you know, Toto Wolf would... I used to joke to Lawrence about it in the media center, and I'm going to do a very bad Toto Wolf impression now, but Wolf would always come out and say something like, you know, this is the lowest point in Mercedes history or something. And you're like, dude, you just finished fourth in the race. Like, it's not that bad, you know, in the grand scheme of things. But they had such a high premium on perfection and everything going perfectly. By the next race, we would have a detailed analysis of what had gone wrong, how they'd improve those strategies, how they'd improve those. A lot of the time, it was just processes. They said, actually, you know, I think it was the double stack. I remember in Bahrain when Russell should have won, they said, well, actually, you know, our process has meant this, 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 and this happened. We'll never do it again. And there was no, oh, you know, everyone's just taking shots at us. They said, no, we've made mistakes and and now we've got better from them. And through the year, I never felt like Ferrari was getting better from their mistakes. It felt like they were kind of falling deeper into it. So Bonotto, I guess, after you've had a season like that, you know, it, I totally get the point about the, the continuity, but you wonder if, if if that culture can change with him at the helm. I mean, it seems like he was taking on quite a lot at the team as well. Um, I did a podcast recently with uh, Chris Medland um, from, mm-hmm. from Racer Magazine. He made a great point on that. It's like, is is getting rid of Bonotto the same as getting rid of Michael Massey from the FIA? Yes, you remove a figurehead who oversaw, in Massey's case, one pretty big mistake. But it's not like the FAA was suddenly completely fine this year. You know, they they still were making the same little mistakes they were making. People were still frustrated with, you know, stewarding, with all sorts of things. So getting rid of one person doesn't often change things. So I can see why they've made the call. But I think the next the next person they pick, they have to think about, is this somebody who can lead Ferrari for 10 years? It can't just be, is this someone who can come in and do a job for two years? I've got to say, this person coming in needs to be, you know, a lifer. And I think Bonotto kind of was that, wasn't he? He'd been there since... I think 94, 95. So he did feel like somebody who you could have built that team around. Now I'm I'm curious about whether he'd lost the support of of maybe Charles. Charles seemed like he wanted to be anywhere else but driving for Ferrari at the end of the year. Um and there's some suggestions that maybe John Elkin, um, you know, at the very top in Ferrari, had maybe lost patience with him. So I think as soon as you lose those key figures in the team, very difficult to stay on board. But yeah, it's difficult to see because it's almost like Ferrari with this great car 
uh, almost starting from scratch again this season. And I think there'll be growing pains with whoever comes in. So you wonder, has this already kind of potentially hurt their chances of of sustaining a challenge against Red Bull? Because as we mentioned, such a big target to beat. Mm-hmm. And they're already starting with a guy who's probably going to take a bit of time to get, I guess, get his feet under the table, get used to the team. So um, yeah, a lot needs to change there. And maybe it has to happen slightly below Bonotto, but we'll see what actually happens in the next next few weeks. I'm glad you mentioned Charles' frustration just because he went from frustrated to sad, Lawrence, frustrated to sad throughout, you know, midway through the season and beyond. And he then said, you know, he wants them to pick a driver once the season develops to maximize chances. Obviously, you know, you've got Carlos Sainz, who's a great driver as well. Whoever they choose to be team principal, team boss moving forward, how do you think they manage those two personalities as their drivers? Um, I think relatively easily that I, the drivers, I don't think were really the issue this year. You know, Charles made the old mistake. Carlos made some mistakes early in the year, but it quite quickly became clear that Charles was a the driver. They were going to put the um, weight behind. And I think they did that relatively effectively in terms of how they, uh, how they balanced the team. But then there were all these mistakes along the way. Um, you know, I mean, if you look at Charles's season, you think of the reliability issue in Spain, then Baku, then the, um, the uh, also the uh, strategy mistake in Monaco, you know, it all just fell apart in in quick succession. Um, but to, to go back to this bigger part of you know Ferrari and, and what's wrong there, I, I don't. Part of it is continuity, but it's also giving the person at the top the control. Um, James mentioned Jean Todd there; he had real full control over how the F1 team operated for a long period of time. Took his time, got his people in place, and made progress, and was also brought in from the outside. I think. With Bonotto, it was a situation where he was really chosen by Sergio Marchioni, uh, who had essentially fallen out with Maurizio Arriva Bene, who was uh, Bonotto's predecessor, and um, so started talking directly to Bonotto. Unfortunately, Marchioni died in 2018. Louis Camilleri took over. He was very, very supportive of Bonotto. Um, uh, around that time, John Elkin, the the, the, the big boss was saying, right, we want to be winning by 2022. Camilleri gave the support. They were winning by 2022. And then, um, you know, that's changed again. Louis Camilleri then uh, left the team. You've got uh, Benedetto uh, Vigna, who's come in, and he seems very, very eager to get results, but also hasn't come from a Ferrari or even really a car background. He's come from a tech background. And I think at the moment, there's so many people trying to stamp their priority on, on what Ferrari is on a wider level because of all these changes even above Bernotto that the person who's in that role hasn't been given the power the ability to make the changes they need to make um Binotto for a long time said he wanted to bring in a no-blame culture which is what Mercedes was so famous for you know if you look at Mercedes as Nate said they've made mistakes along the way but if you look at the core people who are sat in the in the garage the engineers making the decisions they're essentially the same ones that go back to the Braun period in 2009 so it's that kind of um, stability in there and understanding what the problem is. And it's not usually a person, you know, the, the people are usually making decisions based on data. So it's often a system that doesn't, isn't working or a kind of way of analyzing a problem that isn't quite right. And you need to go down completely, take it apart and start again. But if you bring in a new person now, that whole process of trying to deconstruct everything and understand what's fundamentally wrong is going to be viewed from a different perspective again at the top which means i don't think you get that much closer to getting the answers at the bottom i mean while you know i think what Bonotto did on the technical side coming from that you know uh, from an engine position then a technical director and then team boss was that he created a lot more freedom for ferrari engineers to go looking for performance if you look at the car they produced this year it 
looks unlike anything else on the grid yet started at the start of this set of regulations as pretty much the fastest car that's hugely impressive you know there was some real kind of creative thinking going on around it and um i feel like there's a danger that some of that gets lost because those creative thinkers if somebody comes in now who wants to lay down the law at ferrari then perhaps those people who for years maybe didn't quite have the ability to come up with these ideas that have led to the success all of a sudden get trampled on again so i don't know like the drivers yeah you know i mean it, it could be an issue if they get to the point where they are winning every race and charles and uh and carlos are very close to each other meanwhile like i said before if you've got max by himself pretty much at red bull i think that can be a real strength of, of red bull versus a two-car team but it's not it's not the issue it's you know it's it, it's really kind of the whole management situation i don't think it was really bonotto's issues i don't think bonotto was the problem i think it was above him and then on a kind of more minor individual level things like strategy clearly there's things that need to get sorted out as well but again do you get rid of the people or do you actually focus on why these mistakes are happening each time and i just don't think ferrari have done that with the decision they made you mentioned Mercedes there. Let's shift our focus there. James, you said that you thought Ferrari overall was more of a positive season. I think some people would have been surprised by that comment. Mercedes, however, had a positive finish to the 2022 season after what was, I think, a very disappointing start. And maybe would you quantify a disappointing year overall? I mean, they would certainly, you know, a, a team that expects perfection at all times and, and, you know, the, the sort of culture, you know, we talk a lot about culture at Ferrari, the culture that Total Wolf's built at, uh, at Mercedes would definitely not be happy with their year, but I think it's after Red Bull, probably the most impressive team performance of the season, because when you look at how bad, relatively speaking, that car was at preseason testing to where they ended the season, that shows a tremendous amount of growth in this new era of F1, where, you can't just throw tens of millions of dollars at a problem anymore and solve it in a couple races. Uh, you know, that's something that sort of defined the sport for the last 20 years. And, you know, the, the spending, the race was really who could spend more. And, and Mercedes were so efficient and effective in how they developed what was a pretty difficult to drive, uncomfortable to drive, and not that fast race car to something that genuinely won a Grand Prix on, on pure pace. So, I think their season was incredibly impressive. The fact that they have more development uh, window than both Ferrari and Red Bull by a significant margin for Red Bull uh, going into 2023. Like I said before, I still think they've got the strongest overall driver lineup on the, on the grid. Yeah, I mean, if I'm Red Bull and Ferrari, I'm looking more at the silver cars. I'm I'm very worried about what they're what they're cooking up because I think there's a lot of potential there for next season. You certainly knew what they have in Lewis Hamilton. I think the question was, how is George Russell going to transition from Williams into a Mercedes with his teammate being Lewis Hamilton? Nate, could we make the argument that George Russell should be driver of the year just because of the performances he put together on such a consistent basis? Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it, it's difficult to give that to anyone but Max, given what he did. But I think it speaks volumes of how good George was, that he is, like, you could make the argument that he's driver of the year. I mean, I think I said on this show, uh, on our show before the season, I said, I think Russell's going to start fairly slowly. I think it's going to take him a bit of time just to get used to things with, um, uh, you know, alongside Lewis, because I think that was kind of the, the preconception coming in, wasn't it? That he'd come in from a, you know, a team at the other end of the grid. We'd, we'd all thought, okay, he's over, he's competing with a, with a much slower car uh, and he's dragging that into the points. But, you know, we were calling him Mr. Consistent by about race five or six. You know, he was finishing top six every weekend. And Lewis, I think Lewis came into the season. I think I think we kind of 
overlooked how mentally difficult the offseason must have been for Lewis, you know, how he went into that post Abu Dhabi. I think he must have had serious, you know, it, it, well, it sounds like he did have serious questions in his head about, do I actually want to keep doing this? And came in and obviously was in a situation quite alien to him in terms of the car not being where it should have been. Whereas for Russell, he was probably like, well, I'm used to this. You know, I'm used to kind of driving a car that, that you know, I've got to, I've got to learn how to drive it. I've got to, I've got to make some concessions here and there about how we're setting it up and stuff like that. And, but he was so good. And I, I think I, I agree about the driver lineup. I think that right now that is quite comfortably the, the strongest lineup. And, and as we've kind of alluded to with Ferrari and Red Bull could end up being a weakness for Mercedes if they get, closer to Red Bull next year because I, I thought as, as as nice as it was to see Lewis genuinely really pleased for George to win that race in Brazil and you know they didn't get to race at the end I think if they're in a championship fight next year they're both so competitive and you can already hear George on the radio you know he's very forthright with the team much like Lewis is and it's fascinating how similar those two guys are in terms of how they go about racing and I think that could be a really that could be a really interesting uh, internal rivalry because you know, Toto. It's not like Toto Wolf. I don't think has a favorite at this point. You know, he's he's been affiliated with George for a long time. Obviously, Lewis is Lewis. I mean, he's been so big for that team. So right now, it's a great thing, and I think that it's actually it probably helped push them through some of those worst points in the season. But it's an interesting one looking into twenty three because if Mercedes can pull up there, I, I don't know if Toto Wolf can turn to one of those guys and say, right, you're you're helping this guy win until mathematically, you know, you're in that situation. I think both of them would think that they can beat the other guy. And I think he's only the third driver, isn't he, George, to have beaten Lewis over a season, which, you know, everyone all season was saying, well, Lewis might not win a race for the first time this year. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes stats can be misleading, but there's nothing misleading about that stat, whatever the, the season Lewis had. For Russell to do that first year in the door, so, so impressive. So I think behind in, 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 the, in the driver of the year behind Max, I think Russell was quite was quite comfortably that because even even the biggest Russell fan, I don't think would have predicted him beating Lewis and winning more races than Lewis this year and getting, you know, and getting a pole position, you know, just to throw into the mix as well. So yeah, he was fantastic. And probably the revelation of the year. You always like it when a young guy comes up. We've got this great generation of young drivers. Russell's there. I hope Norris gets a similar chance in, you know, the next few years. But yeah, Russell, um, I've got to give credit to Lawrence. He's been the biggest George Russell fan for a long time. And I was a bit like, well, we'll see what happens when he gets to Mercedes. But yeah, you know, he proved people like me wrong that there was any doubt, any doubt at all. This this is why Toto Wolf has you know, has had such high expectations of him for so long. Why were you high on him way back when, Lawrence? Um, I think seeing him come through and also talking to people at Mercedes about him when he was even in GP3 and then in F2, and they were talking about him in a very high regard. And I think really there's a lot of people that team would have liked to see him promoted a bit earlier than he was as well. Um, so the pace, I don't think, ever was really in doubt. The The big question that's, that's still there to some extent is what happens when he's in a in a F1 championship situation. We've seen him in F2 and GP3 and he was very, very impressive. So I feel like it's going to be good when he gets there, but there's always that big challenge for any driver. I feel once they get to a position where the championship is on the line, uh, it's race wins every weekend. And we know that that's where Lewis can be so competitive and so consistent. If you look at the end of last year, when the car came to, uh, you know, came to Lewis, the Mercedes was, all of a sudden the the quickest car um, on the grid, Lewis just ground out the results and got there. So um, I've got no reason to believe George won't do that, but that level of pressure when you're right at the very top. Mm -hmm. um, I listened to Daniel Ricciardo in in another podcast, the F1 podcast, uh, Beyond the Grid, talking about this and, you know, how he rates guys like Lando and George. But then he kept going back to Lewis and saying how impressed he was by Lewis, especially last year and in other years, just being able to keep that success there. 
consistent, always be right on the top of his game. And I think, um, you know, that was one thing that was interesting at the start of this year was that while George was getting some very, very good results in the car and uh, Lewis was perhaps getting unlucky here and there. Uh, if you talk to people behind the scenes, Lewis was working incredibly hard. There was no point at which he was like, well, I'm a seven-time world champion. I don't need to be here talking to you guys about this awful car that you've given me at the start of the year. He was the complete opposite. He was putting in long nights. He was willing to take on experimental setups with the car. Uh, his slightly older body um, struggled with the bumps in Baku compared to George, yet he was willing to sit in a car throughout that race and just you know, deal with it and find out what was wrong with it, get to the bottom of it. So um, it's, a, it's a really impressive combo they've got there. And um, yeah, it'll be fascinating to see what happens if, or probably more like when, they get the car right up there at the front of the grid and how the two of them battle it out for a championship. I think we got to see a different side of Lewis, certainly, as he struggled and he didn't get a win for the first time in his race career. He doubted himself, but as you mentioned, very supportive and and very team-oriented throughout the entire year, trying to get that car right. So I think that says a lot about him. James, I'm just curious, what does Mercedes need to do to close the gap between them and Red Bull? I mean, I, I think they've... I, I don't know the answer to that from a car standpoint, but they do. I genuinely believe that they so. made really okay. good progress um, throughout the kind of last third of the season and have a very clear idea of what they want to do, you know, you hear all these comments from Lewis saying, I can't wait to throw this car in the garbage and never drive it again. You know, we're not going to put it in the museum. It's not going to sit in the lobby of the of the factory. Nobody wants to look at it. No one wants anything to do with it. But he also said, I think we've kind of zeroed in on what we need to improve. And, you know, operationally, I think that team was probably even the best this year still, um, just execution standpoint. And so if they know what to do with the car, I, yeah, I mean, is it too bold to predict 2023 constructors champions as Mercedes? Is that is it too early to do that? I don't know. I think it would have been sort of pre-Brazil kind of time. But yeah, I think that the, what they showed at the end of the year, I, I totally could, could buy that. Interesting that quote you, you mentioned there, um, James, about Lewis, because Toto said the opposite after Abu Dhabi. He said on Sky, I think it was something like, we're going to put this car, uh, we're going to put each, each of these cars in each, each of our factories as a reminder of just how difficult it is to win in Formula One, so maybe Don't him do and Lewis this might... again. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so maybe Lewis won't be visiting those factories if the car in, <laughs> is in the is in the reception. But I think it, yeah. Even with such a bad car, I think it's so impressive what they did. So, if I was, to, if someone said, "Is it a good bet to 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 you know say Mercedes can win next year?" I think it is because you know with the driver package they've got, even if they're you know half as close as they were this year, I think they can do that. Let's shift to Alpine. For a moment, they were head to head with McLaren all year long. Fast car, Lawrence, a bit unreliable, I think is fair to say. What did you make of the year at Alpine? Fernando would definitely say it was unreliable. I think he <laughs> said he had 60 points go missing as a result. He's good at counting problem. his points, Who's counting? Isn't he? Yeah, through. yeah I, if, if anyone knows exactly how many points have gone missing, it's Fernando. <laughs> Trust me, he, he would have been uh, absolutely on it. Um, it's, yeah, I, I feel like it was kind of what we expect maybe from Alpine. I mean, you've always got to remember Alpine that they are a, a works team in the old-fashioned sense. You know, they have a, their own engine department. They have, um, you know, manufacturer backing, yet we don't really expect them to be in the top three. So um, they've made a little bit of progress. They've still got this uh, longer plan coming on. Um, they've had a number of changes at the top. We talk about changes at the top, whether they're a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, well, Omar Zafnaus came in, and I think he's 
had a, a balancing effect on the team. I think uh, they're actually in a more organised, more structured position now going forward. I think previously it wasn't quite clear who the boss was, but now you've got Lauren Rossi at the very top and you've got Otmar calling the shots in, in the race team. And from what we saw of it, that's working. The big question going forward is what they'll be like without Fernando. How big a part is Fernando of a successful team? And it seems like depending on who you talk to, you get very, very different answers. I mean, Esteban Ocon uh, said in an interview recently with one of the French newspapers that he was doing 98% of the work behind the scenes. He was doing a lot of the marketing stuff. He was doing almost all the sim stuff. And uh, I can imagine probably after Fernando made his announcement that he was leaving midway through the year that he probably did check out a bit. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But also, when you've got Alonso in a car, you know you're going to get the best out of it on pretty much any day. As long as it doesn't break, um, he's going to bring it home in in a in a good position. And uh, I think Gasly's a good replacement. But yeah, that will be interesting to see how much how important a driver like Alonso, also just from a motivational point of view within the team. Um, I believe there's some kind of you know depending on who you talk to at various teams as well, there's love-hate relationships with Fernando. But I think for a lot of people, he is incredibly motivating because you know when he gets in the car, visor goes down, you're going to get the best from it. But um, yeah, overall, it's uh, it's more or less where we expected it. And to finish ahead of McLaren was a bonus. But um, yeah, we'll get onto a bit of McLaren's problems in a bit, I think. <laughs> Nate, with its new driver lineup, do you feel like Alpine can make a push for the big three next season? Yeah, if, I like Gasly, but I think that that is going to be a big, it's, it's a massive void to fill there. And um, mm. yeah, I, I agree with everything Lawrence said. I mean, I think that, that that managing that pairing is going to be really interesting because you know those guys have that history there. And let's not point it all on on Fernando. You know, because of the stuff he says, sometimes it's easy to say you know he's the guy that stirs the pot. But Ocon has clashed with with the last two teammates he's had. You know, he clashed a lot with Perez. Him and Alonso, it seemed like there was this kind of uneasy alliance between the two. And they didn't have the you know the the past that uh, that Ocon has with Gasly, so that's going to be interesting as well. I feel like going into next year, just as a side to that, we've got so many teammate situations that could potentially just end in complete chaos and disaster mm-hmm. for those teams. I don't know if we've had a situation like this before, but this one is a really interesting one to look at. Um, f- from the Gasly point of view, I'm so pleased he's managed to kind of get free of that Red Bull program because I think that as soon as it became clear he was never going to get that second chance at Red Bull. It was like this guy's clearly talented enough to go elsewhere. You know, if you look at what science has been able to do, been able to do since he got, you know, I think it was, was it 2018, 2017, he went to Renault. And since then, you know, he's managed to move up the grid and get to Ferrari. And I think that Gasly clearly is good enough to do that. Um, so seeing him, but seeing him outside of that familiar environment as well, that as well will be interesting. You've got a guy who's been there with Red Bull for, I mean, the best part of, I think, most of his career. So yeah, that situation next season with the car they've got because I think they're in a really solid position in that midfield they're actually one of the really interesting stories to watch because I don't think closing that gap seems that realistic because those Mm -hmm. top three teams just for some reason just seem to be on a different on a different level right now and to cut it over the winter you know maybe isn't realistic but if if Alpine can kind of solidify fourth next season there's no reason why you know a year or two we're talking about there maybe being a surprise package down the line. But um, yeah, this is a big season for Gasly, I think, because I think mm-hmm. we'll, he's obviously won a race. He's obviously a good driver, but I think we'll get a, a good indication of just of just how good he is and whether whether we get the do we get the Red Bull Gasly or do we get the the Alpha Tauri Gasly, who you know clearly overperforms a lot of the time with that mm-hmm. car. But when maybe when he's in a better car, does he does he struggle? So I think we'll see that and it will kind of answer that question. I think a team that genuinely had high hopes to push the big three was McLaren going into the 2022 season. And then obviously 
Daniel Ricardo did not, I think, live up to um, what they expected in his second season with the team. So, James, I'm just curious, is a lot of the, I guess, disappointment fall on the shoulders of Daniel Ricardo? Um, and do you feel like they'll be in a better place moving forward as he moves on to Red Bull as a reserve driver? I, I don't want to say yes. Um, you know, it's it's it feels like such a, a cruel thing to say that, you know, the the woes of the team fall on Daniel. And the team itself hasn't said that, right? They've, they've said quite the opposite. They didn't sure. do what Daniel needed. Daniel didn't, it didn't work. For whatever reason, it didn't work. No one's lost faith, I don't think, in, in Daniel as a competitive racing driver. It's just that environment, for whatever reason, it wasn't the right mix. Um, you know, it's in a lot of ways, you can call it a disappointing year for McLaren because they were obviously hoping to be quite a bit further, you know, closer to the, to the top three fighting a little more regularly up there. But at the same time, the fact that they took the battle for fourth in the constructors championship all the way down to the last round, it shows how reliable a car they had, how well they executed on race weekends. And especially with Lando, you know, kind of, kind of going back to Nate's point about, Who's the who's the driver of the year in the every the second tier, which is Max's <laughs> tier one, everyone else. George, very good one. I'm gonna put Lando right up there with him. Uh, because he almost single-handedly had to carry that team to a points hall that kept them within a shout of fourth against a, an LP, and that was a massively superior car from a pace standpoint. Uh, they just didn't have the reliability. So and, and they had two competitive drivers kind of battling back and forth and, and both collecting points. So it's it is it is definitely not going to be looked at as a as a positive year in a lot of ways mainly just because the pace of the car the inability to get daniel up to speed the way that they would have liked mm -hmm. um but you know i, I spoke to lando after uh, after abu dhabi and man that guy's he's really tired of finishing sixth and seventh <laughs> you know it's 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 fascinating because when you go when you show up to a racetrack this year in a mclaren that's a win a sixth place is an absolute win right seventh is a win it's, it's first in class and and he he delivered that result time after time after time. Only driver outside the top three to get onto the podium. He was there, but it doesn't matter. Like that kid wants to win so badly. And if I'm McLaren, I'm 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 panicked about making a car fast enough to keep Lando in the stable. I know he's got a long contract, but as we all know, contracts in F1 mean basically nothing. So <laughs> it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see what kind of uh, of a gain they can make over the off season. I think when you look at it on paper, maybe you would chop it up as a disappointing season overall. But to your point, if you go into the weeds, I mean, Lando Norris, I think, had a very positive season, a lot to really get excited about moving forward. And that's why, you know, he has such a long contract. Mind you, he drove sick twice. I mean, dog sick and did a great job. Uh, doesn't make a ton of mistakes, Lawrence, and always managed to put the car in a decent position. How impressive would you say that Lando Norris's performance was this season? Yeah, I'm, I'm with James. I had him. I did our driver ratings, which always get a lot of abuse on uh, on social media. But I had him as second in that, and no one really seems to have any complaints about that bit of it. So um, yeah, uh, behind Max, of course. But yeah, I, I think it was a fantastic performance, and he's put himself up there again among those um, those top drivers: Charles Leclerc, Max Verstappen, Lewis Hamilton, George Russell. Those are the guys I think we're now talking about as as the top drivers in F1, and as we've just been mentioning. McLaren need to provide him with a car. It's it's as simple as that. And um, I think there's the potential there, but um, I do wonder what, what Orlando's thinking overall because, you know, last year looked like another good step. Um, there was a race win for McLaren last year, albeit strange circumstances. And then this year, it just feels like the whole of 
the midfield has dropped away from those front three teams. I mean, it doesn't just feel like it. That has happened. And um, that gap almost looks bigger than ever. But the the big question is, is how much is the budget cap going to start to address that? That was the idea of the budget cap, was that Mm -hmm. you cap the spending of the very big teams. Uh, McLaren was always just about on the edge of that. So they may have had a bit of trimming to do, but otherwise um, they were pretty much in a position to attack that. And so uh, over the next few years, um, how much will that bring McLaren uh, to, towards those, those three teams. And I think that will basically decide Norris's future and, and where he wants to go. Um, but he's phenomenally talented driver, um, still very young, of course, so he's mm-hmm. not in too much of a rush. But I bet it doesn't seem like that from from inside the cockpit. It was notable as well, wasn't it, that Christian Horner started, I think he was prodding the bear a bit, wasn't he, and saying, well, you know, the day before his contract signed, you know, I was on the phone to Lando, which is classic Horner. You know, I love, he's so good at getting like ruffling feathers, but it shows you. And I remember that there was, there was talk of Norris going to Toro Rosso a few years ago before he was a rookie. I think it was, it was so clearly Red Bull have been interested for a while. And I think, yeah, Norris is in a position where he can kind of turn around and say, look, if, if we're not up to, up to scratch, it's not like he's going to, his phone's not going to be on, you know, it's not, it's going to be ringing a lot if he's looking for another team to race for. Um, so yeah. And there's those reports that, that we saw over the last few weeks of the wind tunnel, the delays to that. You wonder if you're a driver. I think when he was two, two or three years younger, he probably didn't care too much about that. He thought I'm a young guy. You know, I'm starting out. I want to, you know, establish myself with Formula One. But he's done that now, and now as well, he's seeing he's seeing Max win for a few years. But now he's seeing George win as well. And you, you know, if if you've been coming through the ranks with these guys, you suddenly start to think, okay, when's my when's my turn going to come? And I remember when I was that age, I wasn't patient at all. <laughs> so you know, and Formula One drivers, racing drivers, you know, you, I don't think patience sometimes when you're when you're that age, you must think oh, I just want to be winning now. So. Yeah, I think that that's, again, we talked about storylines for future seasons. I think Norris and how happy he is with McLaren, not a ticking time bomb, but it's a it's something ticking. There's something ticking there. And it, you know, maybe gets into a kind of a, a, a risky position for them next season. Well, the team dynamic's going to change as well. And Nate, you, I thought, had an excellent sit down with Lando and Austin uh, a while back where you talked about the dynamic and the friendship between he and Daniel Ricciardo. And there were some misconceptions that the two did not get mm-hmm. along and they felt like, drive to survive painted an inaccurate picture. And so you had that conversation with him. Well, now he's got a new teammate coming in and Oscar Piastri. How does that change the dynamic and what are the expectations for Piastri moving forward? Do you feel? It's interesting, isn't it? Because I don't think any rookies come into formula one for a while with this much having been written about them. And and because of the way Piastri went to McLaren, it's almost like, you know, we were talking about Piastri. I, you often get excited about a Formula 2 champion, but fans would have heard the name Piastri and then they were like, well, when is this guy actually going to race for McLaren? Because, you know, McLaren are trying to get this contract from him. So I think that that has probably created a bit of tension. But from the Lando perspective, that sit down that you mentioned, I was so impressed with Lando in that because the amount he's grown just and matured over the past few seasons. You know, when he first came in, he was quite shy and you felt like maybe he he wasn't that outspoken about the things he wanted from the team. But now, I mean, he's he's come along so far and I don't think that the change in dynamic is really going to affect him. I think I'm not, I'm not saying this, that he feels this about Daniel Ricciardo, but I think he already feels like he's pretty well established at the team. Maybe not the team leader, but he certainly never felt like the team was trying to help Daniel more than help him. You know, he's clearly at home there. So I think Piastri coming in, Lando's not going to be worried about losing to Piastri. You know, he's just beaten Ricciardo for two seasons. I think Piastri coming in maybe is going to feel extra pressure just because of how he came into the team. Um, but yeah, I, I, it does feel like Lando's team right now. And 
Piastri, I feel for him, I think of all the three rookies next season, he's probably got the hardest job of all because of how good Lando is right now, because of the fact that, you know, McLaren did so much to get him. I'm sure some fans are upset still. Well, I know a lot of McLaren fans are upset because, you know, he's replacing such a popular driver. So he's kind of already got this kind of uphill battle. But the dynamics within the team will be interesting because Lando and Daniel did get on pretty well. They started out and uh, they both told Mm -hmm. me that they weren't quite sure of the other one when they both joined. You know, they were both very different ages. They were into different things. You know, Lando, you know, likes playing his golf, etc. Danny Rick goes off to, you know, watch NFL games, hang out with, you know, Josh Allen and stuff like that. But I think over time, that relationship really, you know, really developed, really formed. And I think it actually helped the team, even when Ricardo wasn't performing well. So that could, you know, it could be something that McLaren needs next season. They need two drivers that that get on well. I don't actually know much about Piastri. I don't think, you know, I've not seen him hit a teammate with a with one of those giant balls like <laughs> like Danny Rick did to Lando. Not saying he has to do that to be a good teammate, but he he's quite an interesting character because we don't know much about him. So um, I feel like the McLaren teammates are always kind of, I mean, they, they had Carl Lando, didn't they? And then they had whatever you call Danny Ricciardo and, and, and Lando. I don't know if there's been a name for them. So it feels like they always try and foster some kind of good relationship between the drivers. So we'll see if that happens with, with Oscar coming in. Are you tired of uncomfortable, stuffy clothing when you're on the move? Task Performance is here to revolutionize your active lifestyle. Crafted with their innovative organic cotton and bamboo fabric blend, Task Performance's Carrollton Collection is Task's all-time most popular active wear. Task Carrollton Collection is breathable, moisture-wicking, and provides USPF 50-plus sun protection, keeping you fresh, cool, and comfortable all day long. Task has harnessed the natural performance qualities of bamboo to deliver amazingly soft and durable apparel produced in an ethical and sustainable manner. Whether you're hitting the gym or on the trail, the golf course, traveling, the office, or just around town, Task Carrollton Collection will help you feel better, move better, and live better. Available in dozens of colors. See what better looks like at taskperformance.com. Use code SPORTS to get 20% off. That's code SPORTS at TASCperformance.com. Task, creating the most comfortable performance apparel on the planet. When you're on a business trip, you know what goes completely off the rails? Your workout routine, especially when you book a hotel that doesn't have a gym. So what ends up happening is you do a few push-ups and sit-ups in your room, run around the block, or just skip it entirely. Lame. If you just stay at La Quinta by Wyndham, you'll discover there's a fully equipped fitness center at every location. Now you can wake up and power your buys and tries the right way or de-stress with some cardio. The choice is yours. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. The team finishing six behind uh, McLaren was Alfa Romeo. James, as you kind of look at the body of work there, you know, middle of the pack team, what were your biggest takeaways from the year that was at Alfa Romeo? I think I, I took away maybe the first signs that the cost cap is working. Um, okay. You know, you, you took a team that was pretty far down in the Constructors' Championship last year, came out pretty strong. They had some really strong races in the first part of the year and, and collected a fair amount of points. And uh, they brought an update around Austin, I think, that kind of got them back up into fighting, you know, for points. Um so I, I think that team can be pretty pleased. You know, you obviously have a, a rookie driver on on one side of the garage. You have a driver that's coming in from Mercedes on the other side of the garage, first year in the team. So a completely new driver lineup, completely new car. Uh, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of challenges there, but I, I think they handled it really well. 
Um, I can't think of anything that stands out as a particularly big black mark in terms of their season. I mean, you know, Joe Silverstone crash aside, that's not, Mm -hmm. it's not their fault. That's just, you know, that's racing as they say. Uh, But I think Valtteri did a great job kind of stepping into a team leader role with a rookie teammate. Uh, He seems to kind of be this, you know, all business guy now that's just kind of getting on that doesn't have the the weird power dynamic that existed at Mercedes feeling like he had to be, I feel like someone he wasn't to keep up with Lewis and not have this feeling like he was just playing second fiddle to Lewis. But I mean, you look at of Lewis's teammates in the last, you know, however many years you want to look at on a Saturday, especially he was as competitive as anybody. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think they took the opportunity of of the new regulations and and did a great job. And obviously, with the news that that Audi's coming in in a, in a few years, they they've got a lot of they got a lot of hype behind them. I think it's a it's a good it's a good time to be at Alpha. With Valtteri making the move, Lawrence, did you see what you expected from him in that team leader role? Did you see the performances you were expecting from him, better or worse, or on par? No, I think he exceeded um, expectations. Really, I mean, he scored. What did they score? 55 points in the year, and he scored 49 of them, most of them early in the year, because they uh, you know, they started with a car, I believe, which was quite close to minimum weight, which always helps. And there's a lot of cars which were overweight um at the start of the year, and Alpha really uh did well in, in, in that regard. And then as James mentioned, the performances dropped off as everybody picked up, but then they got a little bit of performance back towards the end of the year. But Valtteri, I think, yeah, got it absolutely right. And yeah, he's got to be pretty happy now, um, considering having his stock has risen back up the time as Lewis's teammate, it was probably the hardest job in F1 at the time, but it was pretty bruising uh, from an ego point of view, from a reputation point of view. Uh, So it was always a question of, well, what happens when you drop down the grid? Well, what happens for Valtteri is that, you know, if he can continue to continue this level of performance at Alfa Romeo, as it morphs into Audi, he could find himself in a really, really good place in 2026. It'll be right towards the end of his career, but if he can convince them, that you know he's the he's the guy to keep and that he can he can continue on this level then uh i think uh it could be a potential second wind in his in his career and um you know i think he'll be he'll be working very hard when audi come around and the guys are inspecting the factory and you know they want people to go and check out what's going on in germany with the engine development i think Valtteri's gonna be at the front listed up but it's great as well because he's a he's a lovely character and i feel like at times um at mercedes i talked to him about uh his his way was mentally um over the 2018 uh winter and how he was ready to quit f1 um he hadn't really told anyone hadn't really talked to anyone about it but in his mind he was pretty much ready to walk away and then he went for a um a wonder in the finnish forest uh in the snow and uh when he was out there he kind of thought actually you know what being a Formula one driver isn't so bad and um, that was a few years back now. And I think uh, that experience um, really helped him in some way to hit a low, a real low mentally uh, to come back. And now he says he has absolutely no regrets about where his career has gone. And he's at peace with being beaten essentially by Lewis um, and Mercedes as much as a driver can be. But he's at peace with that. And he's, he seems to be enjoying F1 as much as ever. Which is and now look at him. Yeah, he's exactly. he's cooling off in the Colorado rivers, getting photos <laughs> taken of his arse, and he's absolutely. Uh, uh, have you seen it. his new haircut? He's he's just gone down to Australia. And he's got like he's gone fully embraced the mullet. Uh, <laughs> oh wow! Um, Not someone well. I anticipated. It, it, it does. It looks it looks better than you might expect. Um, but if you haven't seen it, check it out on Instagram. It's um it's a thing of beauty, and he looks the part because if you put him in an Australian 
Aussie rules team or a rugby union team, he you wouldn't think, oh, that's not an Australian. He looks, <laughs> you know, he looks like w- when they come to England to play every November. That's how the whole Australian rugby team looks. I think they do it for November. So, um, but yeah, but no, I, I agree with that thing Lawrence said. I think that the great thing with um, with Bottas is we talked about Danny Rick earlier. I think it shows you that you know just because you leave a team and your reputation maybe is harmed, it doesn't mean you can't come back and you know find find some form elsewhere. And I think Bottas it's great for him because. I at times doubted how good he was when he was at Mercedes. It's so easy to do that when you're being beaten week in, week out by one of the greatest drivers ever. So he's he was undoubtedly one of the kind of we had a few feel good stories. It was kind of like him, Magnussen coming back. But yeah, Bottas was Bottas was great. And I actually he said, didn't he, to, to you, Lawrence, that somebody asked him to sign that picture of him in the Colorado River with his with his ass out. So wasn't I that feel Lewis? Like or he just the, gave Lewis a signed copy. I think he gave Lewis, Lewis a signed ask. copy, but then I think a fan came up to him and asked him to sign it as well. So yeah, he's just a he's just a, a guy that it's it's quite easy to to kind of you know want him to do well. So yeah, that was that was great. We had a farewell tour at Aston Martin with Sebastian Vettel leaving F1. Lawrence, thoughts on Aston Martin season before we obviously jump into what it's going to look like in 2023. Yeah, it wasn't a great season for Aston Martin um they started a very long way back but things did get better and there was progress and actually just after Abu Dhabi I went to look at their new factory which they're building and there's real promise that this team could be you know we talk about the team that's going to bridge the gap between the midfield and the front runners well if everything they are putting in place pays off then they will do that because they're going to end up with Next year, um, they're going to move into a new factory, which from a manufacturing point of view, which essentially means getting updates to the car, it's going to be a huge step for them. Uh, From a design office point of view, they've just brought in Dan Fallows, uh, a name you might not recognize, but was essentially working alongside Adrian Newey at the head of Red Bull's aerodynamic department. And so really knows his stuff and has already come in there and and looked at things and, and made a few changes along with um senior people from Mercedes and Alfa Romeo so they're kind of building this super team behind the scenes and uh probably the biggest the key to it all is going to be this new wind tunnel which uh won't come online until 2024 but they are so confident that they're going to have a wind tunnel that is a step up on the Mercedes one which they're using at the moment and uh, also Red Bull's one which um you know has obviously produced some incredible cars over the years uh so if all of that it's very easy to say these things it's much more difficult to do it but if all of that is is the case then uh they really could be a a team for the future but this year has to be said disappointing start but um i think the progress they made uh they came to spain with a almost complete overhaul of the way the car looked and uh it opened up an avenue of, of performance for them they're still very much seem to be following in you know in the path of whatever's going on up front the wasn't lost on anybody that the Aston looked quite similar to the Red Bull. Um, and so, you know, they're clearly trying to follow some of the design process there. But I think the plan is that they put themselves in that position where they're within shooting distance next year, the year after. And then in 2025, when the wind tunnel comes comes on, they're going to be in a position where they can try and, you know, uh, close up. Again, easy to say, but there's a lot to be interested in Aston Martin about. And that's even before... We talked about the drivers, and I'll let somebody else do that because you've got one great driver leaving and one great driver coming in. James, is Fernando Alonso a good fit at Aston Martin? TBD. Um, 
I think I think initially, yes, I think any team is going to be, you know, just over the moon to get Fernando Alonso into their factory and, and to part of their organization. He has a reputation for, you know, lifting a group up in terms of performance standpoint. He's very meticulous. He's very demanding. Uh, but, you know, that's ultimately where performance comes from. The uh, the dynamic is interesting. You know, I don't think that Lance is going to give him as hard a time from a teammate perspective on track as as Esteban did at Alpine. You know, from his standpoint, though, it's you've got to have a lot of faith in in these plans that Aston Martin has to make that jump, you know, to move from very clearly the fourth fastest car on the grid to the eighth fastest car on the grid is is tough seventh fastest maybe um it's uh it's like christian said you know the quote you brought up at the beginning of the show i'd rather make a a, a fast car reliable than a slow car fast and you know obviously the alpine was one thing and and the uh, the aston's another so it's it's going to be interesting um if this will be a, another case study in whether or not the fernando effect is real right can he really take a team that was in the bottom half of the top 10 and move it into the to the front half you cannot deny the guy's ability to just pick up a car on a sunday and carry it across the line mm-hmm. way higher than it should be uh so i think that's going to that's going to benefit aston quite a bit because of where they are in the constructors again the way the cost cap structured they got out that extra development time um, the new factory could be a bit of a distraction as they try to move into it mid-season. Who knows? We and, and how many times, you know, have we heard Lawrence about new wind tunnels coming online? Everybody's super excited, and then it actually takes like three years for it to be calibrated correctly. So I don't have as much faith in that maybe as they do, just because we've heard these horror stories in F1 time and time again. Uh, but yeah, certainly more potential in uh in 23 than than the performance we saw in 22. That said, it was great to see some some brilliant drives from Seb at the end of the season there, and you know, looking at Suzuka, looking at Austin, and uh, and to get a point in Abu Dhabi, I think was uh, was a special send off, and we're gonna miss him. He was awesome. Uh, it's a huge part of the sport, and uh, it sucks that he's gone, but you know, wish him all the best. Yeah, well, I was just gonna pick up on James's point. One of the last teams to come in and try and do it all from scratch was Toyota. And it didn't work yeah. out so well. So phenomenally poorly, amazing. actually, infamously <laughs> poorly. Yeah, one. Of, yeah, so, one. Um, of, that's, yeah, that's a great example. Breath on that one, but um, yeah, it's uh, the the money is there. It's just it's got to be put in the right direction. I was also going to, um, James, if you don't mind, just drawing on your experience from IndyCar. Obviously, when Fernando went over there, he's had a couple of attempts to um, to well, he raced once at Indy, failed attempt to win another. I'm fascinated by Fernando. I, th- I think he's such a compelling character. You know, when you when you interview him, you never know whether you're getting a straight answer from him. You know, so you, you're like, is he is he saying this because he knows it's a great headline? But like you said, undeniable how good he is as a driver. But you can talk to five people in the paddock, and two of them will say greatest team teammate ever worked with. One of them will say he's completely toxic. He destroyed the team from within. You know, you can't trust a word he says. The other two will say, well, he was okay, but please to see the back of him. And you there's this there's this kind of this almost this aura this kind of myth around which fernando they're getting what from uh, you know i know it's difficult to say when you're not you're around a guy for that long but what was your experience with him like when he was indycar because he was so popular when he was there i was at that indy 500 in 2017 and it was i I don't want to say he was bigger than the show because you can't be bigger than indy but it was like fernando was pretty close to kind of you know dwarfing that event no for sure i mean the 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 prestige he brought, you know, from from the driver's standpoint, uh, the profile that he had at the time was phenomenal. I mean, he he quite literally missed an F one race. He was like he was an active Formula yeah. One driver that sat out the Monaco Grand Prix to come run Indy. Uh, 
I mean, that's not something we've probably heard for 50 years and we're never going to hear of again. Um, it was such a unique situation. But no, when he came over, his professionalism, uh, his desire to learn, his work ethic, all of those things were through the roof. And it was very obvious to see why he's had the success that he's had. So, you know, in, in what I was able to witness personally, I get it. I'm I'm with that one person in the paddock that said that. But I mean, you just look at his track record. I think you have an incredibly sly, crafty, um, calculated individual that has only one person on, well, I'm not saying on earth, in the paddock that he cares about in the slightest. And that is the guy staring back at him in the mirror. You know, what he was willing to do to certain teams that he's been with in the past. Uh, certain exits have not been particularly pleasant. Certain comments have not been particularly pleasant. I think all three of those responses are Fernando. I think yeah, he is agreed, all of yeah. those people at the same time. I don't want to say Jekyll and Hyde. That sounds maybe you know a, a, a bit much. uncouth, but yeah, it's um, he's a he's a unique character, and his talent is absolutely undeniable. One of the greatest natural talents ever, certainly of this generation. Uh, but yeah, his his ability to move into a new program can can go one of two ways and sorry katie but the, the the other the other fascinating thing with this that i don't think he's ever dealt with before is that the teammate that he Thank i you. assume at some point is going to be sorry i don't know if this is the same point, no, point you're going to make katie no. but the teammate that fernando's always been very good at taking little digs at his teammate through a season he's never had a teammate whose dad is paying him <laughs> the money to drive for the team so i that part of it i don't think we've ever seen fernando with before and um this does seem to be his last his last, the last place he can go. You know, I don't, I don't think he can go back to Ferrari. I don't think Mercedes would have him. Red Bull have said they wouldn't have him. You know, Alpine, McLaren, he's closed those doors off. Don't think he'd go to Alpha or the other two teams. So it feels like if if he is gonna, if he is gonna kind of implode, you know, in the in the way he might have done before, that really is it. So I wonder if he kind of treads that line a little bit more, because um, we saw classic Fernando, didn't we? He got into the car and. The test after Abu Dhabi, and he was like, I, I, I was, I can't remember the quote exactly. He said, I was 100% motivated. Now I'm 200%. It was something like that. You know, it was a classic. He'd moved teams and he said, now everything's going to be great, which is is what he does. So um, I'm going to love following that next season. And um, I think it's a good move if they can keep him, even if you can just control him a little bit. I think it's good for them, but we'll see what happens. He's not one to mince words. And so no. now he's going into a situation where, as you mentioned, James, maybe he's not duking it out and battling Lance on track so it doesn't present itself as often, but you can't take jab after jab after jab at your teammate when your teammate happens to be the son. So I'm, I'm really curious to see if he's buttoned up and more reserved or if he, this is who I am and you knew who you hired as a driver. So take me as I am. Maybe uh we see that side. Well, it's funny because I would I would have, you know, six months ago said, yeah, no, he's he's Fernando. He's going to do what he needs to do. And, you know, Lance be damned sort of thing. But but the really telling moment for me was at Coda when the two of them mm. came together and and Fernando's response was very, ah, yeah, you know, racing yeah. incident. But then you look at Spa with Hamilton or you look oh. at Brazil with Elcon, things that were. I mean, way more of a racing incident, 50-50 situations. I mean, breaking his wing in Brazil on Ocon, that was 100% Fernando's fault, in my my opinion. And, and how like how aggressively and the vitriol he had towards those two drivers in the moment, I thought that was very telling. So I think to your point, Katie, we might actually get a Fernando that's a little bit tamer when it comes to intra-team uh, criticisms. 
Yeah, it's yeah, going to no, be fascinating. Fernando's super smart as well. If if he doesn't have an exit strategy, so if he doesn't have somewhere else he can go to do what he wants to do, mm-hmm. he's not going to you know make a mess in the, in the place he is. It's often the case when he's either at the end of his tether or he's about to move on. That's when those comments uh, start to come out, which is why I guess it was no surprise in Brazil that we heard him uh, slagging off Esteban. Now, let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac, weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue and ready for the play. And boom! Añejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good! The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and Tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Lawrence, uh, would you like to discuss Haas? Sure. Um, I think, uh, again, you know, it was quite an impressive step from a team that was really up the back, middle of nowhere, um, to come and get these regulations right. A key factor that we should probably draw lines between Haas, Alfa Romeo, Ferrari, all taking steps, is that they all share the Ferrari power unit, mm-hmm. Ferrari gearbox, uh, large parts of um, Ferrari suspension on the Haas as well. Um, so that's, um, yeah, there's another reason why maybe Pinotto didn't make such a bad mistake, you know, going into this year and the technical team is working underneath him, but never mind. Um, so I, I, I think that certainly helped Haas uh, get, get to the position they're in. Uh, it was still, despite having a very fast car, turmoil at the start of the year with uh, Nikita Mazepin leaving the team. Um, obviously, uh, it kind of happened to the backdrop of Russia invading Ukraine and Mazepin's family's uh, connections with Putin. And uh, it became very clear very quickly that that deal couldn't continue. And so uh, Mazepin was out, but even so has dealt with it well. And really, I think, you know, what a brilliant move it was to bring Kevin Magnussen back in. Um, I don't think anyone really doubted it as a decision when they made it, but I think a lot of people thought, oh, they're going to have to chase somebody with money. They didn't. They went for a driver that they knew that they knew was going to um, come in and motivate the team at a time when it really, really needed motivating. And then they found eventually that the money side of things came around. You know, they got their big sponsor announced it in Austin uh, for next year. So I think it's uh, it's been a really positive year when you look at where Haas was end of last year, even start of this year to where they are now. And um, the fact that they're back in the midfield fight is is good because it's always bad when you've got one team or two teams that are just off the back of the grid unable to score points. Yeah, Magnuson proved to kind of be that veteran kind of steady presence that they needed. And then obviously we got to witness an incredible moment in Brazil during the sprint race. I'm curious, Nate, do you think when it comes to Schumacher that we were just expecting maybe too much based on his name? Uh, is that fair or can you can you break it down to that simple blanket of a statement? I think the name is is the key part of of kind of everything with Mick this year because I, I said to a German colleague recently I said that I think if if Mick Schumacher 
had been Mick Fisher or Mick Muller or, you know, had not been the son of Michael Schumacher. I think if in the cold light of day, if you'd looked at his record from this season, you'd probably just say, yeah, I think it's fair that Haas have done what they did when you compare it to Magnussen and, you know, the the how expensive those crashes were. But when you add that that name into it, and look, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure most people wanted the Schumacher story to be a successful one. So I think it it's it's always difficult. And I think, you know, when you read about your know, guys like Dale Earnhardt Jr. as well, it's a double-edged sword with to have such a famous name because it probably gives you, you know, maybe it gives you more 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 time. Maybe it gives people more patience with you, but it does add to those expectations. And I think that last year everyone kind of gave Haas a pass. They said, right, that car wasn't great. Mm-hmm. And then this year Magnuson showed, okay, well, here's what you can do with the car. Schumacher didn't do it. And suddenly you know, you look at Magnussen, I think some people in the team did wonder. They said, well, look, if, if Magnussen came straight in and was this much quicker than Mick, then how much of last year could we have got out of that car if we'd had a more experienced driver in? I don't think anyone at Haas was expecting they could have been in the midfield a lot, but there are races where you might have been able to grab a point or sneak into a Q2. Um, so I think that I think the, the pressure around Schumacher was always there, and it, it just didn't seem to come right from at the right times because in the later part of the season, he actually was... I wouldn't say stronger than Magnussen because Magnussen got that pole position, but we saw a real improvement. But at that same time, the car had dropped off and the car was no longer in a position where he could get points. So I think time worked against him. His name probably worked against him as well, but you could also probably argue that his name has helped him through his career to, you know, he's, he's had results at junior levels, but there's always been that suggestion of, you know, I think it was Dan, Dan Tickton that always used to kind of rant and rave about, did Mick Schumacher get preferential treatment coming through? But whatever the story was mm-hmm. there, you know, he's always had results coming through. So a shame to see him go, but you can see from Gunther Steiner's point of view, he's it's amazing how quickly that team's gone from young drivers, rookies to mm-hmm. no, we just we just want experience because it has it's been a complete 180 in in the space of about 24 months. Um it's pretty I I hoped he'd get a third season, but it, it was quite clear, wasn't it, Lawrence? From and James, you probably heard this as well at Cota, that even from that kind of point onwards, it was like, I think we're going with 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 Hulkenberg. Speaking of Hulkenberg, as we welcome him back into the fold full time, James, do you like the move? You know, it's funny. I, I think uh, mid-season when, you know, we were starting to really consider what Haas was going to do with that second seed and, and uh, Nico's name started coming into the mix. I sat there and I thought, you know, you've got a guy that's been out of the car for three years full time what's his motivation? You know, is he still going to have the hunger to do it? Mick still has a lot to prove. He's still young. Um, and if you look at his junior formula career, you know, he had two years in F3, two years in F2, and it really was kind of the second year, really the second half of the second year where he would come on super strong. And so mid season, I'm thinking, I don't know, he might, he might still get there. This is kind of his trend, you know? And while he, there were some improvements, you know, he got his couple point scores in there. It just it just wasn't consistent enough. The mistakes were sort of still pretty prevalent. And then you mm-hmm. get to Brazil where Magnuson's on pole and and uh, Schumacher was 20th. You know, he's last on the grid. So it's, I, I think by that point, honestly, I think by that point, Haas had already made their mind up. And that's kind of at the point where I thought to myself, you know what, when I think back of what he did in his, you know, his super sub uh you know, jumps in the car for, uh, for Aston and for, uh, for racing point, it was remarkably impressive mm-hmm. for a driver that hadn't been part of the development cycle. Those cars had not been racing all year. So he clearly still has the ability. And as long as his drive is still there, then yes, I think that's someone that can be up there. And when the car is capable of scoring points is, is bringing home those points, uh, those points for the team. So it was, 
it was kind of a difficult decision. Uh, I wouldn't say ideal in either direction, but sure. the more I think about it, the more I think that Hulkenberg probably was the right move. Safe. Would you quantify it as safe? Safer, I think. Safer. Yeah. Fair. All right. Well, the ninth team in the constructor standings was Alphatari. Um, and Lawrence, I'm curious how you view Alphatari. Is this a team that you think can actually progress and make a push towards the middle and upwards? Or is this just a team that we accept as a group that's there to develop drivers, young drivers for Red Bull? Well, we always have a joke in testing when <laughs> Franz Toss, who's the team principal AlphaTauri, does his press conference. It's always the same line. He says, this year we're aiming for fifth position. Yeah. And so you don't even have to go down to the press conference. You can already write the headline. AlphaTauri aim for fifth position. And very rarely do they make it. Uh, I, I'm trying to think if they have, but I don't think they have. I think they were sixth and sixth and then eighth over the past three years. I forget the order, but yeah, it's been yeah. it's been around that kind of... And and look, they, they do exist as the Red Bull junior team. It's one of the real strengths that Red Bull has is that they can have essentially four drivers in Formula 1 and look at how well that has worked in the past. So Max Verstappen... When he subbed in, uh, well, didn't really sub in, when he took uh, Kvyat's place in 2016 and all of a sudden was just completely up there and ready to go and won his first race. And from then on, you know, the rest is history. That's the advantage that uh, the Red Bull have in having two two teams there. But the um, the Red Bull driver pool, for whatever reason, and I, I honestly don't know what the reason is, it has kind of dried up a bit. And so you've got Yuki Sonoda there, who really came through the Honda side of uh of of red bull and uh now you've got nick devries replacing gasly who um gasly looked fantastic at some points in his junior career but when he got his chance at red bull it never worked out same thing happened to alex albon who's still at williams of course but yeah. you know these drivers yeah they just haven't quite progressed and then then alpha Tauri tends to look like a bit of a weird weird operation in Formula One when you have drivers just sat there like Gasly. He seemed almost locked into a Alpha Tauri contract that he couldn't get out of. Red Bull was saying off the record that, well, he's not going to uh, race for Red Bull again. So, you know, he needed to find a way out. And that just seemed like an odd odd place for the team to be this year. And I think uh, it was no surprise that when Gasly's future was sorted with Alpine, that he was quite um, critical of the team over Team Radio and uh, we kind of saw a bit more of, of maybe where that relationship had ended up, which was a shame. But um, yeah, it's it's a funny one as well because the Alpha Tauri team, there's always questions of, is it up for sale? Uh, could it be a future, you know, if, if a big brand wants to come in and buy a team, could it be that one? Well, Audi didn't decide to do it. Porsche is still floating around, but I'm I'm not sure about that. But it will be interesting to see how Red Bull deal with it now because Dietrich matched it and it was his idea to have two teams in Formula One uh, sadly died this year. So what does the new Red Bull management want? Is it worth the investment of two F1 teams? We know how valuable F1 teams are at the moment as a commodity. We know there's interest um, a little bit from Porsche, Andretti, of course, as well. So, you know, there, there's all these questions about about the future of the team. But uh, this year wasn't wasn't a splendid show, was it, considering... Um, what that team probably could do and considering the fact it's got a Honda engine, Red Bull gearbox, Red Bull rear end, it didn't quite live up to to what we'd hoped and anything. What we know for a fact though about the near future is Nick DeVries will join Yuki uh, as a driver next season. Expectations, Nate, for 2023 other than we're going to try to finish fifth? <laughs> well, yeah, if he can finish fifth, he's done pretty well. Um, mm -hmm. I was really impressed by Nick DeVries. You know, he seemed like one of those guys that was 
had been good enough for Formula One and had just never been right place or had been wrong place, wrong time. You know, he'd just not been in the right window. Um, and this year, I mean, he drove, I think he drove four cars during the season, didn't he? He drove all the Mercedes powered cars at some point and obviously at the Italian Grand Prix. Uh, and then he drove at the end of the season for Alpha Tauri. And um, a great story because he obviously, he showed what he could do at Formula E. But I think for a lot of drivers, you know, once you've stepped away from F1 and raced elsewhere, I think maybe mentally for a lot of drivers, like, right, that's it. You know, Formula One's probably done. And to his credit, he's kind of kept his foot in that door um, and has kind of, I guess, put himself in a position where, you know, when when he got that chance in Italy, that he was able to take it. And I think the most impressive thing with that with that was how natural he seemed to fit back into or into a Formula One seat. And, you know, maybe racing against Nicholas Latifi, like, you know, some people might say, well, you know, how good of a comparison was that? Because Latifi, mm-hmm. you know, wasn't, it wasn't that competitive against his teammates, but to jump into a, an F1 car like that, like he did, was so impressive. So how he can do over a season will be interesting, but I think people who have followed his career have always said he at least deserved a shot in Formula 1 to to kind of show what he can do. So, And actually, I think that, I mean, I'd love for Yuki to prove me wrong, but I haven't, I'm just not convinced with Yuki at the moment. I'm not sure beyond this third season, whether, it, it, you know, unless we see big improvements from him, whether Red Bull can kind of continue with him like beyond this year and I, you know I, Yuki came in with he was so exciting that first race especially I remember he was racing Fernando Alonso it was like oh my god this guy could be out of no kind fear. of out of nowhere almost just yeah just a hero and then it just it hasn't kind of you know it's, it's been up and down since then and he he's very self-critical he talks a lot about you know he's like I think I think it was this year he said he needs to eat less Uber, Uber Eats and start training more which great quote and I loved him for that but I was like at the same time I was like Yuki you don't say that you know don't like don't say it to the public um especially when you start to struggle so I think that De Vries is going into a really interesting situation there because if if he starts really strongly I think very quickly he could be the kind of the the mm-hmm. inform of those two drivers which isn't a great look for Yuki but would be a really good look for for Nick Speaking of struggling, uh, Williams rounds out the list in 10th, another um, poor season and showing, I think, for a team that was so legendary at one point in F1, James, you know, what are your realistic expectations for this team as we we move forward? Uh, realistic? 10th? Uh <laughs> Not fifth, like, like not fifth. <laughs> not fifth. I mean, you got to have goals. You got to have goals. It's yeah. tough. I mean, it's 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 interesting. You know, when when Williams when the Williams family sold the team, you sort of thought, okay, the financial struggles that we've run about for the last five six years, whatever it been, are gone. They've got the funding. Now we can start to see some progress. But you know, even when they had a driver with the caliber of, of George Russell's talent, you know, behind the wheel, they were still back there for all three of George's seasons there and net was it three seasons he was there or two I forget now I might be misspeaking there however long George was there they were at the three, back it was you three know, yeah it three. was three yeah that's what I thought and so uh I just didn't want someone to you know tweet me later like what are you talking about <laughs> you idiot um so it's it's tough I I don't there's there are no big fundamental changes happening at least externally you know from 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 the outside world that would lead me to believe there's a big change coming there's no crazy new sponsor that's been announced there's no technical differences in terms of technical staff that i've i've read about or or i'm aware of so we know that they have a decent power unit in the car we know that the car has been historically pretty slippery low drag good in a straight line but just lacking downforce uh the aero department there is is kind of seems to be the uh the weak link 
but I don't know what changes are being made to make that make that better. Um, I think Albon's done a good job. Good job mm-hmm. getting that opportunity. I think he's made the most of it. A couple points finishes. You know, Nikki getting his couple points this year was great to to see him get that. But uh, you know, Logan Sargent comes in with, you know, it's it's a big challenge stepping into one of the lower teams. You know, you're not you're not stepping into a a Red Bull. You're not stepping into a you know even a even an Alpine or a McLaren. You're stepping into what is statistically the worst car on the grid that makes it tough for a rookie to get up to speed quickly. Do you think that gives Williams though, uh, a boost in excitement and, and hype going into the season, just in general though, regardless of how they actually fare throughout the entirety of the season? Yeah. I mean, I think change is good in a lot of ways. I think, I think Nick was a really uh, well-respected member of that mm-hmm. team. Um, you know, there were times in qualifying when George was his teammate that he would, he there was a couple of races, you know, a good stretch there where he was kind of that, 10th or less even off of Russell and qualifying. So the pace was there on Saturday. It just was never a Sunday thing for Nikki. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, yeah, fresh blood, new opportunity. I think there's some excitement there. Obviously, with the way Formula One's blown up in the U.S., there's a lot mm-hmm. more eyes on Logan Sargent coming in, being an American. I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic. And it'll be, I think, a rude awakening for him to go from F2 relative anonymity to F1 in general. That's a big step for a lot of drivers and sometimes quite a shock to the system. I think the unique position he's in as an American at the absolute height of the last 30 years of Formula One in, in the States is going to be uh, an interesting one to watch. But yeah, it's it's a tough one to to know if there's going to be much improvement there, to be honest. And with with Logan as well, I, I didn't want it to sound like I was just slamming uh, Nick, Nick, uh, Latifi for for no reason, because I think that the one of the things that Logan's going to find quite quickly is that someone in Formula One has to finish last, and people very quickly get used to seeing the same name at the bottom. And usually, if you drive for the slowest team, that's going to be you. And I I think Albon is probably going to have the measure of Logan in that first season, and that as well. I think when for any junior driver, you know, you come through, and um, drivers who make Formula One have probably been winning most of their their careers to get into that point where it's like right a good weekend this weekend is if we can finish 18th it's like oh okay right the whole race is at the back i remember i spoke to marcus erickson about this when he when he went across the pond to india i spoke to chilton and alex rossi being a great example of that you know he literally went from racing for mana you know and then a few months later he was winning the indy 500 which you know he winning an f1 race wasn't even at the front of his mind when he was racing there so i think that mindset shift for logan's going to be interesting as well to get used to that um and yeah, but I agree. I think the the pressure. I mean, he he must be the first guy going into a season with three home races for. I mean, I, I don't know if that's ever happened before. Um, but uh, yeah, he's a, he's a yeah he's a Miami guy as well. So I think the Miami Grand Prix really will be his home race. Um, but yeah, I think um, interesting that they promoted him as early as they did. I think if we hadn't had Drive to Survive and this boom, I'm not sure whether Logan Sargent gets the opportunity. I think that with a driver like him, you'd probably say let's give him another season. Let's see how he can do. Yeah, that's you know that 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 second, third, fourth season. Uh, usually, don't get a fourth season, but usually you want to give someone more time in in the junior category. So it's a big it's a big leap of faith for him. He probably, you could argue, maybe there's not too many expectations there. You know, it's not like he's going in there and it's like you know you're carrying the the Williams legacy with you this season. Like you know, if you don't do well, the whole the whole team's legacy falls apart. But interesting situation for sure. Um and um. Yeah, it's 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 going to be good, and we finally get to end that talk about because it seems to have, especially you know at ESPN, we you know we've always wanted this American driver. I'm not convinced whether America's needed a 
top level driver for it to be successful as the last few years have shown but i mean it can't help it, it it certainly won't hurt if if logan does you know kind of i guess perform above expectations so we'll see what he does i hope he performs above expectations but americans are very good at handling disappointment in the sporting world so I wasn't going to mention the World Cup, Casey. Too soon, too soon. It's, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I watched the Americans play in London, by the way, and uh, it was an absolute bummer. I'm just going to throw that out there. Not <laughs> as fun as I was envisioning in my mind. Anyways, I want to put a bow on this by handing out some end of the year awards. Okay, so we'll go around the table. And Lawrence, I'm going to put you on the uh, spot first. I don't really think that this is putting you on the spot, but who would you give team of the year award to? I can't say anyone other than Red Bull, I don't think, because otherwise it would be unfair on Red Bull, wouldn't it? They came out with a car that was so much better than the rest. Um, no other team has, from the back of the grid, really shown up in, in a way that beats that. So Red Bull. Nate, James, would you agree? I'd say Red Bull. Yeah, and, and I think for me, one of the big things that makes what they did in 2022 so impressive was coming off the back of the championship fight in 2021, that went all the way down to the last race. That development went all the way down to the last mm. race, simultaneously developing a brand new set of regulations. I think that's what makes it the most impressive, right? We see teams win back-to-back-to-back championships. That kind of makes sense. Once you make a good car, you carry it on. This is the first team that's done it over a regulation change in a very long time. And Mercedes wasn't winning before the hybrid era. You know, Red Bull mm-hmm. stopped winning at that point. So it's I I think it's uh, I think it's super impressive that that Red Bull did what they did given you know the circumstances of twenty one. I feel like this might be an easy selection as well, but Lawrence, who would you select as driver of the year? And then after you say Max Verstappen, who would come in second place? Okay, my I've got my full twenty already out there on ESPN.com, but um, yeah, it's Max Verstappen number one, Lando Norris number two, and then go and check out the rest and. Uh, yeah. Look at that tease. I love that. ESPN.com. Good, <laughs> Good plug. Nate? I Yeah, it's Max first. And then it is between those two, I think, George and Lando. I think the win puts George over the over the line for me. But it's super close. Like, it's splitting hairs at that point because Lando didn't have the opportunity to win a race. And I feel mm-hmm. like he, he achieved everything he could with that car. But I'd just give it to George, I think, in second. James? I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, again, after Max, I'm going to, I'm going to default, like we talked about earlier, I'm going to default to Lando for P2, very close with George. I'm going to give Alonzo fourth, because mm-hmm. if you, if you count all the points that he lost, I mean, that 60 points that he counted was before he also failed in Abu Dhabi. Um, I still had an engine failure in, in Abu Dhabi. So I think Fernando probably fourth, Nick DeVries fifth. Yeah, you, for, said, for, you said you got the other twenty out there at ESPN. There was twenty one guys that. Yeah, no, so. we, yeah, I didn't think it was fair to do. Actually, twenty two because didn't Nico race, fill in for Vettel at the start? Yeah, yeah Hulkenberg so, yeah, did as well. Yeah, so yeah, that's right. Um, um, and that's actually a, it's a fair point about DeVries is because he literally had one race. So if you're looking at strike rate, you know he was hundred percent point scoring. No yeah, other, yeah. No other driver um, scored points in hundred percent of their. If anything, I mean Max couldn't even say hundred percent. So maybe we give Nick. Maybe we say DeVries is the guy. I mean, that definitely would. I'm turning down my ride for next year and I'm just quitting. I'm retiring from Formula One as yeah. the only driver in history that scored <laughs> points in every Grand Prix they, they completed. There you go. Just when we thought we were putting together a very reputable full show, and now we're starting <laughs> to get off the rails yeah. here. Just two more end of the year awards. Lawrence, what would you give race of the year? Um, I think the one I enjoyed the most was Silverstone. Um, okay. And part of the reason for that was because Max Verstappen wasn't competitive in that yeah. race. He had a bit of Alpha Tower stuck underneath his car. 
and that kind of took him out the running. But it kind of showed us how exciting it was behind Max um, when those guys went and raced. And uh, yeah, it was it was a really good race. Lots of overtaking. That great move Lewis had on uh, on two cars. I can't remember. I think it was Checo and Charles into the final corner. Stuff like that is just incredible. So Silverstone, um, you know, it's it's been there an awfully long time. A lot of people have knocked it along the way, but it still produces some brilliant, brilliant racing. Nate? So this is it's just going to sound like I'm copying Lawrence, but Silverstone was going to be my pick. Um, I tell you what, to be different, I'll say Brazil because I think that we had actually. I love the Brazil circuit. Um, you know, I've always thought Interlagos should stay the the final race. It just always seems to throw something up, and um, it was yeah, it, it seemed like you know maybe the safety car at the end was going to you know kind of deny George when he deserved the win, but held on to it. I thought that was memorable. Maybe that's recency bias. It was still yeah. fairly fresh in the mind, but. It was a really enjoyable race, and you didn't know who was going to win until those final laps. So, those are always those are always the best ones. James, you are allowed to copy if you prefer. No, I'll, I'll I won't. I will I will defer. My, I'll give you my podium. So, third place I'll give Silverstone because for all the reasons that have been mentioned. Second for me was Jeddah. Um, you mm. know, early race in the new rules. That was for me the first example that man, they really nailed it in terms of these cars being able to follow and race mm-hmm. a lot better and kind of set the scene. That battle with with Leclerc and, and Verstappen there, the who who could not cross the DRS line first sort of thing, <laughs> that whole little dramatic issue. They had, that was a great kind of kickoff to the season, I thought, a lot of ways. But then for me, the, I think the best one overall was still Coda. You know, you had the problems for Red Bull in the pits, kind of blew the doors open a little bit. Maybe Lewis was going to hang on for that first one of the season. Like the comeback, could Max catch him? You had Vettel with that incredible battle with Magnussen at the end there. There were some great storylines, and it was the most attended weekend, yeah. you know, Grand Prix weekend in history. So there was a, a lot of things about that race that I think were pretty exciting. So that one for me takes the top. And just as a quick aside, like Kota is as as an event every year is just it just grows and grows. It's such a special place to go to. Um, so yeah, it's if any fans listening to this are picking which of the many, many North American races to go to next year, I would put Coach at the top of your list. All right, settle down because the last end of year award is moment of the year. So a specific race moment, or you could just say moment in the season being Coda in general. Lawrence? Um, I'm going to go something slightly different, um, very much from a journalist's point of view, but the moment that uh, an email appeared in our inboxes saying Fernando Alonso had signed for Aston Martin. Uh, was, was was a pretty special one because only, well, the weekend before in Budapest, we were still in Budapest, it happened on the Monday morning. Um, Otmar was, you know, saying, we're just dotting the I's, crossing the T's on the contract with Fernando. And uh, and then it just opened up so many possibilities for the driver market. All the stuff, you know, about Piastri signing a deal with McLaren all of a sudden became exposed as well. Uh, and then, of course, Alpine claiming they had Piastri when they didn't. Uh, yeah, as a journalist, that was that was good fun to uh, to follow along. And I can add to that as well that um, I'd just been told by somebody who I know in Formula One that Piastri had signed for McLaren. So I was trying to work out some more to that. But I was going through security at Budapest Airport. I put my phone in the tray, and as it as it moved away, the email came through. So I looked at it, and so I saw my the tray disappear, and I was like, Alonso's just gone <laughs> gone to Aston Martin. And I was I was like, uh I don't know what to do. And then, you know, the agonizing wait for the laptop to come back and the bag to come <laughs> back. Um, so that was definitely That's memorable. Great. But um, I would, I think that was great from a journalistic point of view. But from a moment, I think KMAG getting pole was was just fantastic. Um, you know, for that team, you know, if you look at some of the stuff they've been through over the past few seasons, they've, 
you know, they've ridden all kind of different waves. So for them to get that was was great. Um, I actually had a beer with uh, Stu Morrison from the team. I know James, you know very well as well. A um, lot of you know good friends at the team. So it's just great to see them. And I think Magnuson coming back was just such a good season, and that that sticks out. I thought it was a pint. So yeah, it is. It is. It was a pint. Well, it was several pints, but probably plural is <laughs> is fairer. But I didn't want. Now we're talking. Yeah, I didn't want to sound too unprofessional on the pod. James, moment of the year. Uh, I love all of those, um, but I'm, I'll go with you know Seb announcing his retirement. It's because uh, mm. in a lot of ways that's what actually set. That was the first domino that fell in all these other things. Uh, but just you know saying goodbye to um, a true ambassador of the sport, uh, four-time champion, fifty-something time Grand Prix winner, uh, and uh, and just someone that's so highly regarded and, and respected. Um, I thought that was kind of a you know an important turning point in not just the year but in in the sport of Formula One. So again, I think we mentioned it earlier, but wishing Seb all the best in in whatever's next. But that was kind of the most poignant moment of the season for me, I think. Yeah, I feel bad because we we spoke a lot about Fernando, didn't we? But I mean, for Seb to have left so universally respected and loved, I think is is pretty rare in any sport to do. Um, so it kind of speaks volumes as to as to what people thought of him. I actually had down on my notepad here. Um, because I cheated a bit and looked at what we're talking about before. Uh, Uh, But I had my personal moment of the year, which was going to be the track run that Seb set up in Abu Dhabi. So he invited the whole paddock to go and run the track with him. And I thought it was just such a nice way to sign off a career and get everyone involved. You know, every single person was welcome to come along. Um, no matter whether you walked it, ran it, set a new lap record, you know, everyone. But, but why did he do it at nine at night? Oh, man. That was... <laughs> was that I too was late ex- or too early for you? That I was, was about too right early. I, I was exhausted at that point. I wanted to be in bed oh, okay. by 9.05. <laughs> excellent selections. Excellent analysis, as always. James, we appreciate it so much, you taking the time to join us on your birthday. I don't know if you know this, but Nate actually has sang a song for us on this pod. Was that before the Hungarian Grand Prix? What is the song that you love and that you always sing in the song oh, with Lawrence? Y- yeah, you mean the, the one they play in the Netherlands? Is it the Netherlands? Lau- okay. Mama Lauda, yeah. yeah. Okay, would you like to sing Happy Birthday since you... Uh, I, I wasn't expecting this story. I mean, look, I don't. Ready? I feel like we've been talking happy for a long time. Happy birthday! <laughs> to, no, we're not gonna. We wish you a happy I mean, birthday. We're not gonna put our listeners through. That is. I tell you what, it's probably I'll, appropriate. I'll, I'll sing a happy birthday over a few more beers next time we see you. Yeah, uh, and that's Fine. that's easy. I think that, that just loosens up the singing the singing repertoire. Deal. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much. I appreciate you as always. Uh, we will be back with more Unlap. James, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. tape that led to one of the biggest scandals in sports and changed the NBA forever. A podcast that unearthed it all. This is just like what 2014 was mm-hmm. like. Like there's yeah. a lot of wild stuff happening. And now a Hulu docudrama. TMZ was calling again and again and saying, we have a tape. Do you want to comment? 30 for 30 podcasts presents The Sterling Affairs. Let's talk clip. We reshot the scene and I could barely watch it because it was so uncomfortable. It was tough. A companion podcast to the FX drama inspired by the award-winning reporting of Ramona Shelburne, one of ESPN's top NBA reporters, an LA native and someone who has been following the story from the moment it broke. 
Join Ramona as she sits down with the cast and crew of the show in spoiler-filled conversations and behind-the-scenes reaction to each episode. Man, this is crazy, but these people live these lives every day. Donald Sterling, this was his lifestyle for a long time. Listen to The Sterling Affairs. Let's talk clipped wherever you get your podcasts.